Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. I forget how dependent we are on electronics and the internet and stuff like that. Because it's been the holiday week, I've done most of my preparation at home or even out of town some, and I saved it to Dropbox. And usually I come in on Sunday morning and print it out, and boom, there I've got it. I forgot that on Wednesday afternoon, about 1 o'clock, during that thunderstorm, our phones and our internet went out here at the church completely. So when I got in this morning, I went to Dropbox and hit the button and thought, well, I'll just download this right now and print it out. It just said, can't do it. Didn't really say that, but it's basically what it was saying. And I thought, oh my. So I was, I was struggling. Do I run back home and print it out there? I just was able to download it. So today I'll be using it. I, I haven't preached for an iPad since I had shoulder surgery in 2013. So today I'm going to depend a lot on it for my notes. I could get them that way. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, as we have said throughout this particular section, is concentrating on the Holy Spirit. Up until this time, he's concentrated on the work of Christ, on the cross, in, in regeneration, and in justification, and doing his work of salvation in the lives of believers. But in chapter 8, he mentions the Holy Spirit more than in any other chapter broken down in all of his writings. He talks about the power of the Spirit, the sufficiency of the Spirit, the, the presence of the Spirit in the believer's life. And, and he comes to this point today of talking about what the Spirit is going to do in the life of the believer. You know, we have erroneously thought and even preached and perhaps even used as evangelistic methods through the years that the primary reason for, for Christianity, the primary reason for the gospel, the primary reason for you to come to faith in Christ is to avoid hell. Now, I want to be perfectly clear here. That is a legitimate desire to do, and that's a legitimate outcome of, of the finality of the Christian life when we go to be with him or he comes again. It is to avoid that and to be at home in heaven with him for all time. But I want you to say, I, I want to say this morning, I want you to understand that that, that is not the primary reason for the gospel in your life today. It's a nice byproduct. It's a nice secondary cause, if you will, or secondary effect. But in reality, there's so much more to the gospel at work in your life and my life today than just saying, I've now been saved, I've, I've walked an aisle, I've gone through baptismal water, and now I'm, I'm going to be in heaven when I die, and I avoid hell. There's so much more that is affected in this life right now. John Owen said in his little book on, on communion with God, he said when we come, the, the Puritan writer, when we come to faith in Christ, we begin to understand just a little bit of the taste of heaven here on earth. That the purpose of our communion with God, communion with Christ, this, this relationship that is born out of regeneration, new life in Christ, is to have a taste of heaven, a taste of what it means to be worked on by Christ and by the Holy Spirit in this life, not just in the life in the future when we die and go to be with Him. 
And, and that's where Paul is really concentrating in these two verses we're going to look at this morning, verses 12 and 13 in chapter, uh, chapter 8. We won't exhaust them today. We will come back to them again uh, over the next couple of weeks, I would imagine, and tied in with some of the verses that follow. But I want you to see these two verses. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body or the flesh, you will live. Now, now Paul is quite direct and quite explicit in that, that, those two verses and those, that statement that he's making for you and me today. And, and basically what he's saying there is, is that when the Holy Spirit is active in your life, and if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit is active in your life. He's made that clear in the first 11 verses of this chapter. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell in you. The Holy Spirit has come to, to convict you. The Holy Spirit has come to change you. And, and he's making it clear here that if, if the Holy Spirit is in you and at work in you, as a believer he is, then, then you are, are, are a debtor. But he says, you're a debtor not to the flesh to carry out the deeds of the body. It's an interesting thing to say. There's an implied statement there, I think, that Paul is wanting us to see that he doesn't explicitly say. If he says, you, we are debtors, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, what in the world is left out there? If we're not debtors to the flesh, what are we debtors to? And the implied statement by the Apostle Paul there is, we are not debtors to the flesh, live out the deeds of the flesh, but we are debtors to the Holy Spirit. We are debtors to the grace of God. We are in debt to Him because of the glorious work that He has done through Christ in our life through the cross. Now, earlier in this book, Paul talked about us being debtors, but he's not talking about it in the same way in this passage as he did then. Earlier in the book, he said, we are debtors because of what Christ has done to us, not to try to pay Christ back. We can never do that. But we are debtors to the world. We are debtors to take this gospel that we have been entrusted with, that we have been blessed with, and indeed we have been saved by the grace of the gospel, the gospel of the grace of Christ, that God has done that work in us. And now we are debtors to the world to say, listen, look to Christ. Listen, this is who he is. Listen, man is, is fallen and broken and far away from Christ, far away from God, his creator and redeemer, and, and you need to turn to Christ and come to him. We are debtors to tell the world that absolute truth. But here the debtorness is not to the world, but it's a debtor to be grateful and to be thankful for what Christ has done in our life. He says, I want you to understand, this is, a, this is an unbelievable work. He says, so then, brothers, and he would imply sisters there, so then, believers, based on everything I've said up to this point, so then, we are debtors, but not debtors to the flesh. What does he mean by that? Well, first of all, I think he means we, are, we, don't, have to, we don't owe anything to the flesh. We don't owe anything to the old nature. We don't owe anything to the man that has been crucified in us, the old man, but we don't owe him anything. He may rear his ugly head, Satan may try to accuse us on the basis of him, but we owe him nothing. We don't have to listen to him, we don't have to follow him, we don't have to trust him, we shouldn't. We owe him nothing. It's kind of like a, a young woman, if maybe she's been with a, 
a boyfriend who's been abusive and neglective and self-centered and, and all sorts of things, and, and finally she breaks loose, and she had a, a, maybe a long relationship with this young man, but finally she's out of that relationship, and she finds someone else who treats her and cares for her and loves her as she ought to be loved. And, and, and this old boyfriend comes back in the picture and says, oh, but we had, time, we had some great times together. And, and she would have to look at him and say, I owe you nothing. I'm not a debtor to you. I don't owe you anything to come after you or come back to you. I have been re- freed from that. I've been released from that. And now I'm free in Christ and I'm free in my, my new relationship to live as a debtor to that because I'm loved and cared for and ministered to in the middle of it. I have to understand, that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying you're no longer a debtor to that which was cruel to you. You're no longer a debtor to that which pulled you down and led you in some very dangerous and very undesirable places. You are now not a debtor to that. Your debt is to the Holy Spirit. Your debt is to grace. Your debt is to praise Him and love Him and glorify Him for the rest of your life on this earth. It's clear and simple. We're not debtors to the flesh. You know, the flesh always asks all the wrong questions. When, when, we're, when someone is walking in the flesh, remember two weeks, or, or, yeah, two weeks ago my sermon, we talked about you can be religious and still be walking in the flesh. Can't be a believer, can't be a Christian and still walk in the flesh, but you can be religious and still walk in the flesh. And when you're religious and walking in the flesh, the flesh asks all the wrong questions of you and all the wrong questions about life. The flesh asks things like, if I commit this sin, this particular sin X, we'll call it, can I still go to heaven? And the flesh weighs that out. If I go up just this far, it's kind of like how, how far is too far in a dating relationship. You know, you, how far is too far? If I just go to here, am I still considered okay? And the flesh says, if I walk into this sin and enjoy it, and I walk into this sin, is it, is it okay? Because committing this sin, I can always run back to God and say, forgive me, God, I want forgiveness for this. Can I still get into heaven? That, that's kind of what the flesh asks. Or, or, they ask some, or the flesh asks something like this. How can I cut corners and still keep my Christian credentials? How can I cut corners in my business life? How can I cut corners in my personal life and still be considered a Christian by those who see me and those around me? That's a fleshly question. It's not a spiritual question. Or a third one might be, do I have to obey the Bible across the whole of my life? You know, if I obey the Bible by walking an aisle and joining a body of believers and confessing Him as as Savior, I've obeyed Him in that way. Do I have to obey Him in every area of my life, in my home life, in my friendship life, in my my work life? I mean, just where where can I cut off obeying the Bible and just say, this is my spiritual life, this is my secular life? The flesh asks that kind of question. This is the mentality of the flesh. And according to Paul in verse 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot do it. So, so this mentality of the flesh is hostility toward God, as if loving God really wasn't a good thing, as if loving God really did give us a bad deal in life. It, it treats God as an object, not as a person. 
Treats God as something to be, to be there when we need him, but not, and when we want him, but not to be there across the totality of life. I, I think verse 13 is one of the most important verses in all the Bible for living the Christian life. And that's why we'll spend some time on it today and, and next week too probably. Because Paul says there, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Okay? Remember, Paul, all throughout Romans, is always contrasting life and death. If you trust Christ and walk with Christ, you will live. If you deny Christ or, and, and have nothing to do with Christ, then you will die. There's always this two-dimensional level. It's you will live in Christ or you will die in the flesh. There is no in-between. There is no straddling the fence. There is no saying, well, I'll, I'll live for Christ on Sunday and, and maybe one other day of the week, and I'll live for myself the rest of the week. No, it doesn't work that way. You will either live in the flesh, walk in the flesh, and die, or you will live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and live. I, I like the way one writer translated those two verses. Listen to this. This is Ray Ortland. Ray Ortland says, in translating this verse of Paul. So then, dear friends, we owe nothing to our old sinful nature with its futile attempts at self-perfection. If you draw on nothing more than your own native moral capacities, you will surely die. But if you put to death your sinful impulses by the power of the Spirit, you will live. You know, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Putting to death the sinful deeds of the body. That has traditionally been in Christian circles for generations, for centuries, called mortification. As I, I quoted uh, John Owen a moment ago, he had another book entitled The Mortification of Sin, written hundreds of years ago. But as we studied that in our Grace Equipping class that I led last year, we saw one thing about that book written 400, 500 years ago. It is just as significant and just as relevant today as it was back then because what Owen calls on us to do in mortification of the flesh mortification of sin is exactly what Paul says is really the key it's really the, the issue in the Christian life on this earth we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh it, it's, it means to kill it it means to destroy it, it means, to, means to reduce it to absolute, total weakness. Not when we stand face to face with Christ in heaven, but when we stand face to face to Christ on this earth. That's why I had Pastor Todd read that passage out of 2 um, Corinthians, because it talks about gazing upon the face of Christ. And we don't have a physical face to gaze upon, but we gaze upon the face of Christ in the Word, in the Scripture. We see his glory, we see his holiness, we see his truth. And that's why I had uh, 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 Jeff, not Greg, Jeff, Gregory, read the uh, passage out of Colossians 3. It says, set your mind on things above where Christ is. Look unto him, think about him, glory in him. Because that is the, that's the key to the Christian life. But this idea of mortification... This idea of putting to death the deeds of the flesh is not something you hear a lot about from contemporary pulpits. Let's be honest with you. Most of contemporary pulpits talk about seven ways to have a happy life, seven ways to have a good marriage, 
10 ways to love your dog, whatever. It's just a, it's a, it's kind of a hodgepodge of self-help, do-it-yourself Christianity. The one thing the Apostle Paul is making adamantly clear here in this passage is that you cannot mortify sin in your own life. You ought to desire to do it. There ought to be this ambition to do it, but there's a sense in which you cannot do it. I want you to see several things about that. First, mortification will mark us as Christians right now. Mortification and a desire to put to death the deeds of the flesh, the sinful deeds of the body, sin will characterize us as Christians right now. It will mark us. Now, understand, our world tells us that we can make certain allowances, sometimes huge allowances, for for sinful behavior. The world tells us now that it's okay to do what the Scripture says is is wrong as long as you do it with the right motivation or the right attitude, as long as it's done out of love. As long as you're doing it out of love, it's okay. I mean, that's that's the new golden rule. That's the new standard, if you will, for everything. The world has infiltrated the church in so many ways And as the world says, it will make huge allowances for sinful behavior. So does the church in many cases. Our world tells us that we have to let everything out. Don't hold anything in. Suppressing our feelings is dishonest and even harmful. Well, I want you to know the gospel and grace and mortification and the Bible isn't telling us to suppress anything. I agree, suppressing stuff is not good. But the Bible doesn't say suppress your sin. Hold it back. Try harder not to do it. The Bible says kill it. Destroy it. Put it to death in its, total, in its totality. Mortification is not, not some kind of self-punishment. It's not self-flagellation that the, the old monks did in the, where they would beat themselves and sleep on nail, beds of nails and other things. It, it's not that at all. It's not saying I'll deny myself of something I really like and, and thus be better for, with God, you know. No, no. Killing it is killing it. Putting it to death in your life. And the the thing Paul says here is you can't do it. He said if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, oh, there's the key. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Second thing Paul wants you to see here is that mortification is by the Spirit. It's not by legalism. It's not by self-righteousness. It's not by saying, I will avoid this, or I'll avoid that. Something that our culture might say is sinful, or our, 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 our area might say is sinful. I won't do that. I will, I will put that aside and show you that I'm strong enough that I don't have to do it. That's why people... Who, who get into an addiction have such a problem breaking that addiction, they, they get the idea that I can do this. I can lay it aside. I can put it aside. I can break that, only to find themselves back in it before you know it. Because mortification of a sin is, is to mortify by the Spirit, not by legalism, not by self-righteousness, not by trying to do it yourself, but by trusting in the Spirit. Now, here's the key. When the Spirit of God lives in us, 
When Christ is alive in us through his Holy Spirit, there is a desire that is given by the Holy Spirit to see that sin put to death. He is doing it, and he is working it in our lives. It's not us getting up the energy to do it. It's it's the Spirit working within us and pointing out that sin and saying to you and me, that sin must die. Not just be hidden, not just be suppressed, but that sin must die. The key is it's by the Spirit, not by legalism or self-effort. Third thing about mortification is that it's aimed at life, not mere correctness. The flesh wants to be correct. Legalist always wants to be right. The legalist always wants to feel, be, be right because it makes him or her feel superior. I, I've got this down. I've got this area of my life under my control, and you don't, and I'm better than you because of it. Man, that is a legalistic view that is totally contrary to Scripture. You, you want to see the dangers of legalism, read Galatians and see the Apostle Paul ripping apart legalism there at Galatia when they were saying, well, we're good, we're following the law, we're getting this done and that done. And Paul said, but you're missing the essence of the gospel. And the essence of the gospel is that your sin is put to death on a consistent, on a daily basis. The legalist always wants to be right. Legalist always wants to be viewed as doing things right. The Christian just wants to always be in Christ. The Christian just always wants to have and know and walk in and experience the presence of Christ. It's not about being me, me being right so I'll look good and I can feel superior over you. It's not not about me being right so that you'll see me and say, oh, there's a good man. Remember what the Apostle Paul said about his life before Christ? He said, I I, I had everybody fooled. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. As to the law, I was without blame as far as men could see. He suppressed his sin. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I had a zeal for God that surpassed anybody's zeal. Man, I was out there, and everybody that looked at me and looked at Paul, they would say, now, Paul, there is a prime example of a really good man. He must really love God, but in his heart, he hated God. His his direction was not God-glorifying, God-honoring. His direction was me being glorified. Me being seen good. And I have to ask you this morning, are you an Apostle Paul prior to Damascus Road or are you an Apostle Paul after the Damascus Road? Because after the Damascus Road, Paul said, but, but when I met Christ, when I came face to face with Christ, when when I came to know him, I saw that all of that stuff, all of my riches, all of my religious accomplishments, all of my birthright that I had that I thought so much of, it became like garbage. It was valueless. It meant absolutely nothing in the view surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. The legalist wants to be able to be pointed to and say, and the one walking the flesh wants to be pointed to and have people say, boy, they're good. 
But Christ, the Christian just wants to say that I may know him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed even to his death. That I may know Christ. And it's that desire, it's that passion to know Christ above everything else that gives the impetus, that gives the power, that gives the strength to put sin to death in the flesh and in your life. Legalist wants to be right. The Christian just wants to be in Christ because being in Christ is where life is. Final thing, fourth thing. I think mortification is a courageous matter. I really do. The very language that Paul uses here, put to death, implies the boldness of living in communion with the Holy Spirit. Living in communion with the Holy Spirit. You know, once a month on the third Sunday, we come together and we we have the Lord's Supper set up here and we observe the Lord's Supper together and we call that communion because that is a, a special physical reminder of being in Christ, of having union with Christ and having communion with Christ. And and we do that to, to get our focus right. But in reality, if that's the only time you sense a communion with Christ, then, then something is badly wrong. Because for the believer, putting to death the deeds of flesh, mortification of sin in your life, that is a daily communion with the Holy Spirit. And that is a courageous thing. It's a courageous thing because it's a painful thing sometimes. To have the Holy Spirit constantly at work in your life and you're constantly aware of His presence and you're constantly desiring to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Why, all, all the time, the Holy Spirit is saying, but what about that sin? And it's our fleshly tendency to say, oh, well, that, that one's no big deal. I can handle that one. Don't, don't worry about that. And the Spirit says, no, that is a big deal. Let's deal with it right now. Let me give you the strength. Let me give you the power. Let me give you what it takes to kill it. That's dangerous. Because that can hit with attitudes. It can hit with actions. It can hit with words. If we're walking in the Spirit, I'll guarantee you one thing. When those things rear up, the Holy Spirit will not let it go unchecked. You understand that? When, when we're walking in the Spirit, not walking in the flesh, when we're walking in the Spirit, not trying to straddle the fence, the Spirit will not let those sins in our life go undetected, unpointed out. Because that's the Spirit's work. So you see, the, the purpose of the gospel the purpose of the Christian life is to work in your life now by His righteousness and by His grace and by His power to fit you for heaven. The writer of Hebrews makes an interesting statement. says, without holiness or without godliness, no man will see God. Now, I do believe that part of that is that that is a godliness and a holiness that will come when we stand face to face and we're totally glorified. But I also think it speaks to our life today. 
that there is this progressive sanctification, there's this progressive work of the Holy Spirit to bring about mortification of sin in your life that is a holiness that he is, he is working in your life. You'll never be fully holy. There are groups who say that you will be. There, there are groups who say, right now, I have no sin. I am completely holy. And the Apostle John has a word to them. He says, if we say we have no sin, we are liars and the truth is not in us. We struggle. And we will struggle until the day we see him face to face. But the purpose of the gospel is working about that sanctifying work of the Spirit in your life and in my life right now. To bring about a change. Bring about a difference. So that it's not so much that when people look at your life, they would say, oh, there's a good man. There's a good woman. That's what the flesh wants. But it would be that our lives are being lived in such a way that when they see us and they hear us and they know us, they wouldn't say, oh, what a good man or woman. They'd say, oh, what a great God he serves. What a glorious and holy God he or she serves. Their God is great. Dare I say their God is awesome. There's something about that that draws people to the truth. That God uses your life. I'm trying to put a guilt trip on you here, but hear this. God uses your life as a professing believer either to draw people to himself or to repel people from him. see his glory in and through you or to think he must be a fraud because you seem to be a fraud when they, I wish I had another hour but I don't But when, we'll get that next week when the apostle Paul says for if you live by the if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. If the Spirit is working in you and convicting you and killing sin in you, there's where the promise of life comes. He doesn't say if you can do it, you'll get life. He's saying if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. In other words, if there's evidence of the Spirit at work in your life, that is evidence that you have life. And you are living. You're not walking in death. Mortification's courageous because it's scary. It's scary because if you've been living a life with just sort of no mortification, and now you come to a commitment before Christ. Lord, your spirit lives in me. I want that mortification to be real in my life. I want to put to death sin. People are going to look at you differently. They're going to wonder what happened. 
They may treat you differently. They may turn their back on you. They may see, say, I don't want any part of that. The question is, which is more important? The glory of man or the glory of the Father? Put by the Spirit working in you. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Pray with me, would you? Father in heaven, help us to learn what it means to mortify the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We want to live. We want to walk and live as a child of God. We want spirit-empowered destruction of sin along with new holiness of life in deep and personal communion with you every day. Blessed Holy Spirit, lead us along, step by step, into these experiences. Whatever it takes, Lord, we ask you, Lord, to lead this generation of your church to these things as well. Us at Grace Baptist, we at Grace Baptist, but also the church at large, Lord. Lead us to mortify sin. Oh, Lord, we are being overwhelmed with a tidal wave of sin all around us here in this modern world. Our culture clamors to see what new disobedience to you they can embrace. And Lord, they're running at such a speed soon, I don't think there'll be any sins to embrace. Lord, give us spirit-given holiness. Flood your church with a renewal of spirit-given holiness today. Father, bring about another great awakening in this land, as you did with Edwards and others in the history of this continent. Lord, spread across this land like a prairie fire that cannot be quenched. Father, we ask you to do this in the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen and amen. I will glory in my Redeemer one who set me free, the one who called me, the one who gave me life. And I will pray that he will do his work in my life every day. I glory in his redemption and I glory in his sanctification. Change me, even in this life, into the likeness of Christ. Stand with me, sing with me. As God moves in your life, you be obedient to him. Come as we sing.